Welcome to Behavior Grooves, the podcast that explores human behavior through a behavioral science lens. I'm Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. We like to explore why we do what we do with researchers, authors, and practitioners in a conversational setting in order to bring those insights to you. We speak with a wide variety of people. And after publishing more than 280 episodes, you might think that we're jaded or have heard it all before, but that's not the case. Our guests still inspire us with great conversations, great insights, people with bright ideas and very full hearts. And that is the case with our conversation with Cecile Peer. We talked about her latest book, Human-Centered Leadership, Awakening the Choice Within, which came out in May of 2021, by the way. We talked about some of her research with Stanford, and there were a few things that really turned some classical business ideas on their heads. You can manage work. So you can manage a task, you can divide it into pieces, uh, you can time control yourself or resource control yourself, but you cannot manage a human being. Again, I'm not a parent, but I'm sure those of you who have children would appreciate that you really cannot control your children. I try to control my husband sometimes and that backfires on me. So it's just not possible for us to actually control one another. I think what we can do is lead one another. So meaning we can try to guide a conversation. We can try to guide a perception. We can share some of our experience or the benefit of the other. We can sit with the person and listen to what they're going through. And if we have relevant experience, we may be able to ask some questions for them to reflect on what they're going through and how they may be able to navigate This is key. She challenges a very fundamental belief that most leadership hierarchies have endorsed since the Industrial Revolution. And there were more really cool ideas during the conversation with her, like how the mindset of caring is one of the most important things a leader can possess and how adaptability and resilience might be the two most important cultural foundations that a company can have. And while Cecile is not a household name, you should know that she authored Human-Centered Leadership with more than 20 years of consulting under her belt and several years of longitudinal research with Stanford University to pull the data, analyze it, and package it so nicely for us to read. And 100% of the profits from the book are going to a nonprofit to benefit the education of young girls in emerging markets. So we strongly encourage you to buy this book, read it, and gain even more insights from her work. Yeah, and with that... We hope that you sit back and relax with a warm cup of caring mindset and enjoy our conversation with Cecile Peer. Cecile Peer, welcome to Behavioral Grooves. Thank you so much for having me, Tim and Kurt. It's lovely to be here with you. Well, thank you. We're excited to have you. I am very excited (laughs) too. Thank you. Well, let's get started with a speed round just to get things off cracking here. Do you prefer coffee or tea? Coffee. Coffee. Okay. Very, very quick there. Although my mom would not be very proud because, you know, I'm Turkish and Turkish is a tea culture. So I I guess I'm more American in that sense. Coffee. <laughs> I would have thought Turkey would have been more of a coffee. I hear Turkish coffee, you know, not necessarily Turkish tea. So... Second question, dinner with your favorite musician or favorite actor or actress, which would you prefer? Musician, probably. Okay. And you know, Tim is going to ask, which musician would that be? (laughs) Yeah, that would be really, really hard to answer. There are a number of people I'm quite fascinated with, like, don't laugh, but Eminem, for example. I'd I'd love to know the guy, you know. Because there's so much there and just richness of experience. You know, I listen to Diana Krall a lot. I'd love to get to know her. You know, there's some of the youngsters. I I don't know. I mean, there are so many people that I'm just curious about, (laughs) I guess. (laughs) 
That's great. I think Diana Krall would be fan- fascinating as well. I mean, how has she survived being married to uh, to Elvis Costello? I mean, that's kind of my big question. Yeah. How, do you, how do you do that? You know? <laughs> there are some interesting questions I would post to her too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Next speed round question. Minneapolis or Zurich? Which has better weather? Oh, man, that's hard. So unclear. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to say Minneapolis because I have a lot of people that I just carry in my heart all over the place. And I just I'm not as connected in Zurich. I'm here for a work assignment and I haven't built those close relationships. So the snow goes well with the heart. So I'm going to go. Ah, I like that. I like that. Yeah. So, yes, you lived in Minneapolis for a while and now Zurich and kind of all over the place. So that's mm-hmm. fascinating. All right. Last speed round question. Which should students or managers value more? Should they value achievement or should they value kindness? Oh, kindness. I wouldn't think that for a second. Yeah. And actually, um, I know we're going to go there slowly, but in the book, there is a piece of data that we provide. You know, a lot of the students nowadays want to be more rich or successful Mm -hmm. versus being kind and compassionate. And I don't know, I'm not a parent, but it really makes me think about the next generation. Just to follow up on that, tell us a little bit about this research, about this rich versus kind uh, studies that you're doing. Yeah, um, so that's not our study, but when we were uh, getting ready to publish on the study that we did, I pulled in a number of data from other studies, previous studies that other professors or thought leaders have done. And I just came across that data and it was something like, oh, I'm not going to remember off the top of my head, but almost 80% of uh, today's students would much rather become rich or successful versus be kind or compassionate. And again, it just made me pause and think. Uh, I'm not a parent, but I love all children of the world. I I haven't been able to bear children. That's why I'm not a parent. It's not because I'm not interested. It's quite the opposite. But I've sort of come to embrace all children of the world as mine. And You know, that makes me sad if I can say that. It just makes me sad because I work with a lot of rich people who may consider themselves successful, who have a lot of access to material things. And, you know, in a private jet, they may tell me they're not actually feeling very satisfied or happy. And so I don't know. I I just I get the paradox of that, I guess. That's that's the best way to put it. Yeah, the uh, one of my cohorts in my PhD program, he did his dissertation on executive angst, which is that point that you just talked about. These people that by all outward appearances had the senior vice presidents, presidents of corporations, you know, the fast car, lots of money, you know, living the the perfect life as most people would say. And he, you know, was an an executive coach. And what he found is that these people, many of them were miserable. They were absolutely, it's like they thought that I just need to get that new Porsche. I just need to get that bigger house and I will be happy. And in fact, they didn't, they got it and they weren't happy. And so there's all that component. And so I like this concept that you talk about, uh, Cecil, about the idea of of kindness. And I think that leads into your book, right? So you have a, a, a book out called Human-Centered Leadership. So who is this book intended for? And what do you think, who would benefit most from reading this book? Yeah, thank you for going there. I'm going to take one step back and sort of build on your uh, last point, Kurt. I think this, you know, being on the out for Um, something bigger and better is one part of the whole human story. So as human beings, we have three core motivations that we are all born with. One is definitely around the self-interest, and that's where the story is currently built. But then we have an equal need for connection and an equal desire for purpose, for being part of something that's bigger than ourselves. And I really had it in my heart to tell this bigger story in the book. And so that's kind of the transition into the book. The book is written 
I think for people like me who are practitioners and who have been in, you know, leading positions and maybe have struggled to mm-hmm. be themselves, to remain whole, because, you know, these positions are hard. You know, I have at the moment a very large team, you know, 40 some people, and then I'm catering to leader groups and they're geographically dispersed. I get pulled from all kinds of directions. And then on top of it, I have a family and, you know, COVID-19. I mean, you name it. It's just, these are hard positions to be in. And there are a lot of triggers for us. And frankly, you know, five, six years ago, I found myself behaving in ways that I didn't necessarily felt were aligned to my values. And I took myself out of the industry. I resigned. I was an executive at a pharmaceutical and just felt like, man, I'm not showing up at my best. All these work practices that I've been taught to work with. Uh, as an instrument to provide something for people. They're not working. They're actually working against me. I don't know what I'm going to go do next, but I'm just not going to do this anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And that's led to me investing in a research consultancy um, where we established a number of affiliations and one was with Stanford University. And uh, that's where we did the research and wrote the summary. So the book is really for active individuals who are wanting to discover new ways of being, I think. I gave a very long answer to a very short question, but hopefully that gives you <laughs> a good That's fine. This is what we do. So we, we and I, so I want to dig in on that because I think there's some really interesting pieces about this. The, the way a the book that came about, right? It was it was kind of a self discovery piece for a little bit. This idea that, mm-hmm. hey, I'm realizing this, and and maybe there's more here, and other people are going to be be facing that, which I think is is fascinating. So if you had to like just boil down the 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 one message from this book that you want people to get out of it, and I'm assuming it comes back to something about being yourself and very different things, but I don't want to put words in your mouth, so. What is that one message that you would want people to, you know, after reading the book, go, yep, I leave with this, this big idea, this concept that I'm, I have. Mm, I think I may have a simpler answer to this one. So you may be happy. <laughs> I think, I think what people will find out um, is that we always have a choice. We have a mm. choice as to how we show up. No matter the circumstances, no matter who we are surrounded with and or what's expected of us or what we think is expected of us, we have a choice. That's the takeaway I think people will find in the book. Did writing the book help you in your journey? Oh, very much. And I have to say, you know, I was going through some personal situations while I was trying to write the book at the same time. And there were many occasions in which I self-tested some of the concepts like, okay, this is not working. Let's go back to my purpose. You know, what am I born for? (laughs) What am I doing? And what's my North Star? And, you know, how am I taking in the information to make sense of this? Uh, So, yes, indeed, Tim, uh, it's helped a lot. And and the other thing I will say is um, I think it would be naive for us to assume or expect that you can be at your best at all times. I mean, that's just not realistic. If anyone has figured that one out, they can let me know. But my goal, <laughs> my goal is not for, you know, leaders to always do the right thing or always, you know, remain authentic or holistic. I, I Again, I just don't think it's realistic. I just want them to know that, they have a choice to be conscious. And if they can catch themselves and say, okay, this is not working for me or, oh, wait a second, maybe this is not coming across as I meant it and self-correct uh, the course, I think I've achieved my goal, honestly. So you, you bring up a really good point is catching themselves in these moments when they may not be as authentic as they want or being that type of person that they want. But you know, from the work that we've seen in different pieces, that's that's hard, right? It's hard to 
kind of step back from the day-to-day grind that we're in, just putting our, you know, we're, we're just so busy. We're so doing things. So are there, there are things that you identify that can help in maybe taking that step back and kind of identifying those moments? Are there things that you've uh, come to, to understand that can help people in doing that? Yeah, absolutely. And you are right. So again, not our data, but uh, a lot of the global work workforce studies would say roughly about 70% of leaders are not living in the moment because oh. they're, you know, so busy or, you know, they're there in the body, but the mind is elsewhere or their heart is, is elsewhere. And then about 25% of them report not having anyone to turn to in times of stress. So I think a lot of us do feel quite isolated and perhaps unproductive and disengaged at times, but there are tools that can help us. And this is the introduction of the book. There are kind of mindsets, for example, we are introducing that are not predominant in the workplace. We're also introducing some core inner qualities that are available to us, to all of us by birth, and what it means to work with them. Uh, and how they can serve as a tool for us to gain the necessary acceptance or and or awareness. So yes, that, I think there are some tools that we introduced, Kurt. Great. Well, let's let's hear about some of those. Can you talk about? Let's start with the mindsets because I think this is wonderful stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So there are about eight new mindsets that we are offering in the book, and you know, for for people, I think we are all familiar with the term mindset but for those you know who perhaps didn't even think about what's a mindset these would be the kind of assumptions you know views notions beliefs that we hold and they are quite powerful in the development of behavior process so from the time that we sense something to the time that we feel an emotion or have a thought our mindsets play quite a bit of role. So they kind of shape our capacity for perception and for action. And of course, you know, we end up in a frame of reference uh, with a particular mindset. Uh, And then that affects the way that we are relating to the world and the way we may be doing our work, et cetera. So let me give you a couple of examples. Uh, One of the pairs that we talk about is caring mindset over control mindset. So our experiences in the workplace and in in life generally, I would say, are defined by these micro moments. These are single moments of connection we make in any given environment. And at work, they can come in a form of eye contact, for example, or a smile, or by simply being present, you know, sitting with someone. And In studying some of the enduring organizations, we found one emotion that's common in these micro moments. This is one sense of caring. Caring is kind of the degree of affection or compassion, if you will. You know, people may be feeling towards one another or express towards one another. And there are great benefits to carrying a caring mindset, uh, especially inside the workplace, because workers experience lower absenteeism, less burnout, for example, greater teamwork. Um, And actually, uh, a lot of organizations are picking up on this, like PepsiCo, Whole Foods Market, you know, Zappos. And they actually list caring as a value in their leadership uh, principles. The opposite of this, and we can talk about why caring does all of this, but the opposite of caring is control. Control would be um, like a degree of perceived regulation inside a given environment. So these are the kind of environments where, whether consciously or unconsciously, there are lots of policies and procedures and, you know, specific ways of doing things. And the detriment here is when we carry a mindset of control, we tend to shrink in our capacity because we are likely disconnecting from our emotions. So we avoid what's happening with us, what may be happening with other people. There's really not a lot of room for us to express something beyond the cognitive. And when we stay in this state for prolonged periods of time, our stress hormones get triggered and eventually we start becoming more doubtful sometimes fearful, sometimes even resistant of change before we even know it. 
<laughs> and, and, you know, in extreme environments, you know, these uh, mindsets of control, unfortunately, can manifest itself as even actions of emotional abuse or abuse of power. You know, we see sometimes those things, too. So this is this is one pair as an example. I, I hope that's that's what you were asking for. But just that is the, mm -hmm. that's fantastic. Let's dig into because you, you talked about this idea of like, so why is caring important? What is the mechanism for why that having that caring mindset is going to be driving all of those valuable outcomes that you talk to? So can you talk a little bit about some of the why that is there as relative compared to the control kind of mindset? Yeah, yeah, it's very interesting. And it's very close to some of the research out there around virtuousness, if you're familiar with that too. So, um, but anyway, with, with this mindset, this mindset of caring actually enables individuals to carry a sense of naivete. And mm. I know, especially in English, in American English, maybe so, uh, naivete is sort of mistaken for being childish you know not having a good understanding of the circumstances but that's not what naivete is actually naivete is sort of having a sense of pureness around things and not having a lot of biases playing in the process so anyway there's this sense of naivete towards all things they come into contact with and that seems to sort of serve as a moral compass in seeing, hearing, meeting others at the level of their humanity. And with that, you know, comes this tool that fights against uh, the struggle of, you know, righteousness, I would say, because a lot of the times we lack the qualities necessary to show our humility. Uh, we struggle to say things like, I don't know, you know, I don't have the answers or tell me more about this. I'd love to know more. Or, you know, I missed something or I missed that. Help me understand what it is better, please. So it sort of helps us overcome the ignorance and the kind of biases that are innate also for us, by the way. Um, so bias is not always a bad thing. And it helps us overcome the inner critic that often tells stories to us. So it's really interesting. I mean, this very simple thing, this mindset of caring has all these impacts around sort of how we see the world, how we hear people, how we relate to them in our communication, you know, and it just opens up all these other doors. It is really a huge concept. And the way that you framed that was really helpful, Cecile. Thank you so much. One of the things that really strikes me about this part of the conversation is I can imagine a portion of the population of leaders being very attracted to this idea, mm -hmm. instantly seeing the value in it. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, I could also imagine a portion of the population of leaders saying, that's not me. And that's, <laughs> that's baloney. What, the, you know, the best way to, to get things done is to control. I have years of history of cracking the whip as, you know, as they would say, you know, I, I, I just, I don't know exactly what the question is, but you had to be aware of you know, knowing that your message would, would fall on some deaf ears. Oh my God. Yes. Right? No, I love, I love, <laughs> I hear the question there. So thank you. For, um, so a couple of things. I think a lot of the times we mistake leadership for management. And one of the things that I'm trying to help, at least the colleagues that I partner with understand, you can manage work. So you can manage a task, you can divide it into pieces, uh, you can time control yourself or resource control yourself, but you cannot manage a human being. Again, I'm not a parent, but I'm sure those of you who have children would appreciate that you really cannot control your children. I try to control my husband sometimes and that back backfires on me. So it's just not possible for us to actually control one another. I think what we can do is lead one another. So meaning we can try to guide a conversation. We can try to guide a perception. We can share some of our experience for the benefit of the other. We can sit with the person and listen to what they're going through. And if we have relevant experience, we may be able to ask some questions for them to reflect on what they're going through and how they may be able to navigate through that. So this idea of 
managing people just doesn't sit well with me, Tim. And I actually quite dislike this language of manager. Uh, so I'm yeah. right now trying to encourage our executive team to perhaps consider calling all of our uh, people managers today, I'm put using that in quotes, as, as leaders, <laughs> as people leaders. There are different levels of people leadership. You know, you may be one, two, three years in the role and you may be perhaps a little junior in the way that you lead people. You may not have understood all your capacities or capabilities. That's okay. But I think if somebody is in charge of a human body, I much rather refer to them as a leader than a manager. It's just, I just think, you know, brain wise, it signals the wrong thing. <laughs> yeah. Cecil, it's interesting the, the way that you talk about this because reminds me of another conversation we had with a different guest, Kwame Christian, who was talking about this idea of compassionate curiosity. And the idea around compassionate curiosity is asking, being truly curious and, but having that curiosity with a sense of compassion so that you're asking these questions about the person to understand where they're coming from, what they're doing and having a sense of compassion within that. And it sounds like that's a lot of what uh, you're talking about with the leaders and and how they, they can approach some of these things. And so wondering if that if that concept, just in the brief way that I described it, which I did not do justice to this at all, if that aligns with some of your thinking in this. Absolutely. Absolutely. It does. And just to wrap up the, from the last question, you know, uh, when leaders ask me, is there hard data to show, you know, whether caring brings results? Absolutely. There's expensive amount of evidence, not just our research, that shows time and time again when individuals thrive, they're more oriented towards collaboration, teamwork, they become more creative. And as a result, teams flourish and overall organizations have better success and results. So that's sometimes helpful with some of the harder conversations too. But coming back to your question, Kurt, around compassionate curiosity, it resonates so much with me. Sometimes leaders say compassion is soft or it it feels Mm. soft to them. And let me tell you, compassion is harder than anything, any any of the eight attributes we talk about. So we have purpose, we have things like wonder, wisdom, foresight, emotional insight. So all of those core qualities, innate qualities we talk about, compassion is one of the hardest ones. You know why? I think a lot of the times, first of all, people don't know what is compassion. They either mix it up for sympathy or empathy. So I just want to highlight that they are different. They actually sit on a spectrum. If I have time, maybe I can quickly give you an example too. So sympathy would be something like, let's say you're walking down a street and you saw someone fall uh, inside a hole. You would be walking up to them and essentially saying, oh my God, you're in a hole, that must have hurt, and you walk away. Empathy would be you showing up by the hole, you looking at the individual and saying, oh my God, I have been there, I know it hurts, and you still walk away. Compassion would be actually coming to the hole and saying, oh my God, I have no idea what that feels like, or I have been there, but I'm going to get you up. Wait a second, you go get a rope and then you actually get the person out of the hole. So in the definition of compassion, there's action. And that's the harder piece. It's easy for a lot of us leaders to, you know, sit with someone and whether genuinely or disgenuinely, try to understand someone, right? Like you can pretend you're hearing or you can hear someone and then you can very much disconnect from the responsibility and say, well, that that sounds awful. I'm really sorry. But then when it comes to compassion, you not only notice the potential pain or the suffering in the environment, but you actually, after you have the empathic care, you actually collaborate with the person to alleviate their pain or the suffering. So you take an action towards releasing whatever may be working against the individual's experience in that environment. So that's a lot harder (laughs) if you ask me than (laughs) some of the other pieces. So, yes, the compassionate curiosity just resonates with me. 
another very long answer to your short question. <laughs> no, I, I love these these answers because they're wonderful. And I love the the distinction that you make about that compassion has this component of action that you you need to do something with that, which I think solidifies how that is different than empathy or sympathy in very different in a very concrete way. So thank you. That was that was absolutely wonderful. I do want to get into uh, some of the research that you did. So as you collaborated with the university, with Stanford University, and you you did some surveys and and different research with Fortune 500 companies. So can you tell us a little bit about that research? Kind of broadly speaking, what was it, and what were the findings from that? Yeah, absolutely. Several years ago, I was in India on a February. I used to teach at the Indian School of Business uh, for continuous education purposes. So they were, you know, higher executives in the field, practitioners that I spoke to. And I was presenting this data. We were talking about the change in business context and how we're in a flux and the environment dynamics are so much different than it used to be 20, 30 years ago. And I shared this piece of data that since the year 2000, 52% of Fortune 500 companies have disappeared from the market. And one of the gentlemen in my class asked, well, what happened to the remaining 48%? And I took that back with me (laughs) on the flight, Kurt, in my heart, feeling like there's something there, there's something there. And then I felt, you know, these organizations have been around for a really long time, at least in the last 20, 30 years, but sometimes even more. I wonder if they have a different definition to leadership. I wonder if they're doing things that may be a little bit different or differentiated from some of the others. And what can we learn from them? So that was the initial idea. And that's when I started looking for research uh, partners and Stanford University actually has a dedicated center. It's called Center for Compassion and Altruism Research and Education, so CCARE. Um, and I wrote to them just cold call, like, this is what I have in mind. Can you, you know, would you be open to partnering with us? Can you be interested in such topic? And together with them, we uh, formulated the study, reached out to the remaining 48% of the Fortune 500 companies, so there were about 140-some, <laughs> and said, you know, we'd like to come in and study uh, your leaders for two years. Not everybody accepted, rightly so, uh, but we had about 118 of them collaborate with oh, wow. us. Wow. So it was a, yeah, it was a big study, uh, and it was so painful, I have to say. I, I, I The most <laughs> amount of tears I've shed in my career <laughs> was for this study. <laughs> oh, it was so painful. Okay. <laughs> we can get into that another day. But, uh, <laughs> no, no, we don't need to get into that ever. <laughs> Let's leave the tears behind. That's totally fine. Uh, so, but what we discovered about um, these organizations was their longevity, their sustained growth was really grounded on two foot basically. One was they really embraced this concept of adaptability, which meant that they were always exercising foresight to understand what was happening internally and externally and adjusting their organizational capabilities appropriately. So they were updating their policies, their procedures, their work practices. In some cases, they were investing in new equipment, new assets, etc., And the second one was around resilience. They were equally invested in growing capacity for their people and their leaders. So they were, you know, looking for new ways of leading teams, individuals, organizations, where leaders needed to discover new mindsets, for example, new behaviors, even new emotions. Some of the organizations had emotional development programs for many, many years, which I find super interesting and innovative, to be honest. So that was the main finding, Kurt. So for sustainable growth, these organizations were standing on these two foot adaptability and resilience. And then being organizational psychologists we are, we got more curious around, okay, but what's enabling, what kind of behaviors are enabling the adaptability and resilience to come to life. So then we discovered sort of some common practices there. And then we went a little bit deeper 
understanding behavior development. Okay, so what are the kind of mindsets they have at play? And then, <laughs> <laughs> and then we were like, well, maybe there are some individual qualities there too. So we went even further. Again, that's why the process was so painful because we were constantly getting more curious and wanting to understand more. And it just required a lot of stakeholder management and looking at the data in multiple ways. Um, but so that's the study. And so in the book, that's essentially what we cover. We sort of uncover what are some of the common behaviors uh, we discovered, what are some of the common mindsets, and what are the core attributes that can help us show up differently inside organizations. Is it fair to say that there is a best, there's a better mindset or a best mindset to help leaders get to their best self is kind of what I'm kind of where I'm where I'm heading with that. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, although, you know, that wasn't sort of an intuition I had going in to be completely honest. But now that I look at the eight pair that we identified, they're all positive mindsets. So um, yes, I think I think your assumption is absolutely right. Um, and then there are some that really made me think about the systemic issues we face in the business context, but also in society. So one of the mindset pairs, for example, is around scarcity versus abundance. So these organizations carried more of an abundance mindset versus scarcity. But I look back to all of the circumstances I had in my lifetime and the educational systems that I've been part of. And after, after that, you know, business systems that I've been part of, they're all built on the premise of scarcity. This idea of competitiveness is ahead. This high idea of resource management is ahead. Even, you know, what we were discussing around management, the practice of management comes from the mindset of scarcity, divide and conquer, right? Like that was the industrial zopar yeah. thing. So, yeah, just it just points to some more interesting things for me to to get curious about in time. Not quite yet, but. <laughs> back when you can kind of go, all right, let's let's get back into some of this research and, and make that happen. Yeah. So one of the things that I thought was really interesting within the book was this idea that you, you also brought up this idea of self-esteem and trust, this idea that that was a key component. And, and so how, what, where does that fit into the larger picture and what, what role does the self-esteem element and trust play within kind of this human-centered leadership story? Oh, I love that question. Thank you for asking. So, um, you know, when we are born, we all come to life as babies. And for a really long time, we are going through developmental stages that help us become an adult. Research, not our research, would tell us that about 62% of us get to, in the adult development stages, one to five, we get to about stage three, 62% of us. So majority of us are really stuck in teenagers. <laughs> um, this is my interpretation. I hope I'm not offending anyone, but it's okay. So we have a bunch of kids running around and trying to manage the world. So why this is interesting to me is because the organizational development process for a business for a society, you know, for a corporation, nonprofit, has three stages. It has dependence, it has intradependence, and then it has interdependence. And for us to get to an interdependent state, which is yet another word misunderstood largely in the business context, but for us to get to an interdependent state, we actually need to operate from a place of healthy self-esteem. So it's really, mm -hmm. really important we understand who we are, you know, both with strengths and our shortcomings, because we all have that. And what are our triggers? You know, what's our life mission and how to make all of that work <laughs> in relation with others who have all of the same parameters at play. So it's really important that we at least set the intent to understand what we are made of and, and come you know, aspire to come from a place of self-esteem. We're not always going to have it at the measures that, that we wish to have. And again, it's, it's okay for us to not always show up at our best, but it helps for people to know the makeup of who we are. It actually, it's foundational for trust building. One of the things that I often talk about 
in relationship to courage, for example, courage really means for us to sort of remain true to what's at heart. And it's really important because it, set, it helps set us boundaries. Like, this is what's important to me. This is not important to me. I can appreciate that's important to you. So let's find a common ground, right? Like you, you have clear boundaries. Self-esteem is very much the same. When you're clear about your mission, when you're clear about your values, when you're clear about where you can contribute best and when, where you may fall short, you know how to relate to people and say, here's what I can offer. Here's where I'm going to need your help. Here's where we can co-create together or we can go outsource it, you know, uh, together. It just creates this sort of even baseline for relationship building. And that's so critical for trust. Um, I hope I'm answering your question. I've sort of been on many different tangents there. Is this good? No, app, wonderful, wonderful. That was a beautiful answer. Uh, I, I want to just reiterate the idea that leadership is not for a bunch of crazy teenagers. <laughs> Let's just start there. But it also makes me think about the role that senior leaders have in choosing junior leaders. Mm. They have a responsibility to be selecting adults, basically, to be bringing more self-aware adults into the process. How difficult is that? Wow, that's such a good reflection. I love that. And, you know, we don't do it. Let's just be honest. Let's put that on the table. So, I mean, I have been in human resources and OD as a practitioner for about 23, 24 years. So people who have been doing this a longer time would be able to say better. But uh, in my years, for the most part, what I witness is people get promoted into leadership positions because they are really good individual contributors, not because they aspire to lead people or they're drawing people as influencers or they have the maturity to bring the right people and the resources together to solve problems. We actually assume being a good individual contributor in a particular job with particular set of technical skills makes you a good leader. And that's a bad recipe. <laughs> that does not work. I think we know that by experience, don't we? Um, so this is, this is where we need to renew some of our practices. I mean, I, I just want to table that. Until we stop hiring for the wrong reasons, we are not going to get better experience for our people. Yeah, I would agree. And I've seen it so often in organizations where, you know, it, 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 take sales, for instance, you know, the top salesperson gets promoted up to the manager and being the top salesperson doesn't necessarily mean that you are going to be a good leader within that organization. You're a good salesperson. You aren't necessarily a good leader. And that person who is somewhere in the middle of that performance range might have all of those skill sets that you just talked about, the right mindset, the right attitudes, the right way of being able to develop people in different things. And, and you look at research they've done on uh, coaching as well in, in sports, and I don't always like to bring sports into things, but this idea that the top performers are often the worst coaches because they don't understand what it takes from the perspective of, of some of the people who are struggling about the skill set because they just oftentimes are naturally gifted in various different things. And so they, they don't have the reflective element to be able to look back and say, oh, these are the steps that I had to take because it just came so easy for them. They never had to really think about it. And I think some of that parlays itself into exactly what you guys are just talking about here. So I think with that, I, I know Tim is itching to get into some music okay. conversations. That's okay. a number of these uh, interviews. I've learned that I can tell by just his body language and the visual here. So Tim, <laughs> take it over. <laughs> Cecile, we would love to hear about what's on your playlist mm -hmm. these days. Did you, and I'm wondering if, if your playlist changed as the pandemic evolved, uh -huh. just out of curiosity. Oh, an interesting question. So there's a lot on my playlist. You would think I'm a crazy person. Sometimes it's Latin music. Sometimes it's just different genres. Sometimes it's rock and roll. A lot of the times it's jazz. Oh, and then every once in a while, when I get really jiggy, I, I have Turkish music, you know, with the belly dancing. And stuff. So, <laughs> there's quite a lot for me. I have to say, even though we are doing less outside, COVID period for me has been very suffocating, if I can use that word. 
So I have turned to more music with without lyrics. And, and I have mm. to say, you don't know me, I should say this. I'm very much drawn to lyrics because there's a, even though I'm an organizational psychologist, there's a sociologist in my heart. Like I am <laughs> drawn to, uh, you know, why we do certain things is from a behavior perspective and what's happening with the society. So, I mean, I was mentioning Eminem. That's, that's why I'm so curious. Like the guy writes amazing lyrics. What's going yeah. on in his head or in his heart or in his body? That's what I'm curious about. Anyway, so I've gone away from the lyrics. I'm more, <laughs> I'm listening to Zen music. <laughs> I, just, <laughs> I need to elevate a little bit of the tension from my body. So that seems to be working better. <laughs> well, that that's fantastic. So if you were... Uh, to be uh, thrown onto a desert island for a year, is there an artist, a uh, musical artist, you know, uh, uh, or two that you would say, I this would be the music that I could rely on for the next year? Oh, man, such a difficult question. I think... Ah, uh, come on, that's an easy one. You've got that, you've got it right at the, the top of your, you know, <laughs> tip of your tongue. Yeah, so you may not know her, Bebe. Uh, and just the way it sounds, Bebe from uh, Spain. I really quite love yeah. her her work, and it's Spanish mm-hmm. music. I don't understand, but I really I can listen to it for a long time. Yeah. And then there's some Sufi music. Uh, oh. Yeah, by Alan Ark. I I think he's from Canada. He, I think he goes with the name Marjan Marjan Dede, which means the wise person. But uh, so that Sufi music, I can probably live on for a while. And then, um, yeah, I, I may have to just take Diana Krall. I love her quite a lot. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, there's a lot to love. There's a lot to love about Diana Krall. But Bebe, oh, totally connect with her. I think, uh, again, I love that the sound of her voice is just fantastic. That's what I think, uh, too. Again. I'm so glad you recognized. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think she's fantastic. Well, so, so I'm going to have to talk with our friends, uh, Craig and Lisa, about this because I, I, I would be interesting because they have a very eclectic music taste, too. And I know you mm-hmm. you spent some time with them and wondering, going, hey, didn't you know, let's, let's talk about this. So anyway, thank you. This has been an absolutely fantastic conversation. The insights that you have and the research that you've done, I think, is just really powerful. And particularly as we think through, we work uh, um, huge portion of our lives and the way that we show up to work, whether we're leaders in the organization or not, I think is going to be really important. And what you're bringing forth here, I think is really powerful from that perspective. So thank you for the work. Thank you for the book. And uh, thank you for having a conversation with us. We love this. It was really fun. I'm so thankful. Thank you very much. As you know, I'm a new author. So uh a lot of this is new to me, but I love the conversation. I just felt like I'm sitting around the table with Lisa and Craig. It's not much different. So uh, <laughs> thank you very much for the hospitality and welcoming me. And yeah, I hope people find good value from the conversation. I would welcome them to purchase the book. I do mention this on purpose, but I don't generate any revenue from the book. Everything has been donated for the education of young girls in emerging markets. So it's really about the message, Kurt. Mm. That's that's what matters to me. I just want people to understand the crisis that we find ourselves in in society, you know, climate-wise, politically, economically, all of that is because the system is is a little bit crooked, you know, and we have a choice to make things different going forward. That that's the message. Welcome to our grooving session where Tim and I groove on what we learned from our discussion with Cecile, have a free-flowing conversation, and talk about whatever else comes into our human-centered brains. Ah, they are human-centered. It should be human-centered leadership brains. Excuse me. Excuse me. It's not just human-centered. It's the leadership part is really key to all of this. Because why? Because 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 as, as we talked about, I think at the very beginning, and kind of what what Cecile talked about throughout this whole piece is that for many organizations, not every organization, for many organizations, that human centered part of leadership is missing, and it is a managerial leadership style that many organizations have. This idea that humans are resources, 
that you are not a human, that you are an employee that we have hired to do a job and you are supposed to show up during that day and we are going to leverage all of your elements to get the most productivity out of you and thus it is going to, you know, benefit the organization. And I think and that's maybe cynical. Maybe I mean no, in, in many, no. many organizations that we've worked with, we we see there are people that care about their employees as humans and different pieces. But I think the larger picture is that oftentimes those human-centric components either aren't understood. Like, how do I do that? How do I show up as a as a leader and still think of the people that are working for me as humans and not feel like that's too soft, not feel that that isn't being uh, business-like, all of those factors that come into play. So it's changing that managerial perspective into a leadership perspective and bringing that human-centric component within it. All right, there we go. Yeah, speaking of speaking of changes, you know, some of the corporations that we work with, we have seen changes in human resource departments renaming themselves like people experience departments. Mm-hmm. And that's a I think that that might be a subtle change, but it certainly takes some of the some of the wind out of the conversation about just human uh, employees, you know, taking the whole employees are basically just resources. And so how many what's the headcount that we've got yeah. here? And talking about you know the people, and then talking about the roles. And I think one thing that Cecile did really nicely was emphasize this idea that you don't try to manage a person, mm-hmm. lead the people, but manage the tasks, the job itself, not the people who are doing them. And while it may seem like a fine distinction, I think it's a really important thing for any kind of corporate leader to be thinking about today. Bring yourself to your your day-to-day with more awareness and more attention and think about the people. If we haven't learned anything in the last couple of years, it's people are squishy, vulnerable, crazy, wonderful, incredibly intelligent, bright, committed, and emotional beings. <laughs> so so let's let's kind of deal with the people as people, but let's deal with the tasks on a different level. And I think that she does a great job of of separating those. I think that's really interesting. And I I like this concept of changing department names. Again, is it going to have a huge effect? Mm, Probably not. Is it going to help reframe and thus create a different mindset for how people are going to be looked at and approached and how the organization thinks about things? Probably a little bit. And those are those small incremental changes I think are are key to a larger systemic change. And that is really what I think we're talking about here, this idea. So here's a piece that it threw me off because it was just crazy. This idea that the, the research on today's students who said 80, 80% of today's students wouldn't, would much rather become rich or successful versus being kind or compassionate. Now, I have a concern that how they asked the question might have led that into different pieces and various different aspects. But still, the, the, the idea that we are prioritizing rich and success, and that's what people see in social media and in the news and in all of the other elements that we are showing our kids, as opposed to being kind and compassionate, which is this human-centered side of things. This is the, the idea that you know a life, a full, rich life is more about being connected with people and showing compassion and kindness and being a person who others want to be around and and look up to, not how rich you are or how successful you become, we tend to fall back. That's an easy thing to come and and identify with. It's, It's harder to identify with being kind and compassionate. It is. It's and it certainly isn't easily measured in the world. Today. Oh my God, no, no. But I, but I agree, Kurt. This is a false, a bit of a false equivalency. The you know successful versus compassionate kind of thing is not a great comparison. I did like that she emphasizes this mindset of care. Oh yeah, I really, really like that. And what I heard in that when she talked about the about the way uh, companies are well, the successful companies are kind of getting into this. That to me, it sounds like there's a foundation of psychological safety and transparency and intersectionality, probably at, at the core of all of this. Yeah, I think that you you nailed it, right? This idea 
if you have a caring mindset, it really lends itself into that psychologically safe environment. Because if you're caring, you're going to be open, you're going to be allowing people to show up how they need to show up and to be heard in various different aspects, all of those things that come around psychological safety. We also have to think about corporations needing to kind of get rid of that that siloed aspect, the turf that comes with political gains from my department winning, your department losing. You know, I go back all of the time when we think about management and leadership and kind of the difference between this and and all of this is we spend an inordinate amount of time hiring in really smart people who hopefully have been vetted to be people that you trust and that you consider to be intelligent and understand what they need to do. And if you are doing that, then why are you micromanaging them? Why are you taking (laughs) the opportunity to let them be who they are and and who they are in all of their components, which is the the human side of things? Mm -hmm. As long as they're getting the work done, again, if the tasks are the measurable part of the job is the task or some kind of output or some kind of process, if that's, if that's being adhered to, then gosh, let people be people, you know, I'm sorry to interrupt, but she, she talked about that. She talked, it's, you know, and I quote, so it's just not possible for us to actually control one another. So we can influence, we can lead, we can show what we want, but you know, unless you have a gun pointed at somebody's head or you're very, you know, you're, you're controlling them through very, very much the the fear-based, like if you don't do this exactly like I want, you're going to be fired. Then you're, you're, you're limiting the potential that people have and you're limiting the opportunity. So this isn't just about being a nice, compassionate, kind person. This is about taking organizations to the next level and understanding that the people that we bring in are human and that they have faults and, and you know emotions and all the other factors that like, oh my gosh, let's just control that. Let's make sure that we don't allow that in. But if you allow that in, you also allow all the creativity, all of the flourish, all yes. of the connectiveness that you get and that is the power of this. And there's data to back it up. Cecile said that research shows time and time again that when individuals thrive, they're more oriented towards collaboration, teamwork, they become more creative. And as a result, teams flourish. Like, oh my gosh. Yeah, teams flourish. Like, yes. 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 More, And that means more work gets done when, you, when people are happy doing their jobs. Organizations have better success and results is what she said. I mean, think about that. So, A, you're kinder, nicer. Your job is probably, I wouldn't necessarily say easier, but it is probably much more rewarding. And your teams flourish. Oh my gosh. Why? why? Let's just, that's it. That's all you got to do. There you go. So simple. <laughs> well, I mean, we're glossing over the nuance of every corporate culture is, is going to be different. Every objective of every company is going to be different but, but come on uh, how hard so can there's, it be there's, how, come on there's Jim. some new ones come on <laughs> that's why we get hired just to come in and to figure those things out <laughs> um, but the last thing i just wanted to comment on that was just kind of bone chilling was this idea that uh, some very large percentage of people who are in in leadership are basically just stuck in the teenage years of development <laughs> Like, oh my God, it unfortunately confirmed my worst fears. But Which might was, be the reason why it's not happening. Like leadership like this isn't always happening because it's hard, right? That you're working with people who developmentally, emotionally have not moved past that stage. What is it? Stage three in a stage five in five stages of a, development yeah. as, as they're looking at this. And this was really interesting research, and it's really scary research when you think about it. But that doesn't mean that we can't keep working at it and keep trying. And so there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was reminded of uh, many years ago reading Ken Wilber's A Brief History of Everything, which is a pretty interesting philosophical book. And he said that the truth will not necessarily set you free, but truthfulness will. Hmm. I was like, 
the act of being truthful, the act of acknowledging where we're actually at is a very important thing to embrace today, uh, especially in the world that we're living in with all the complexity and chaos. Let's be truthful about how things are going and where we want to go and how we're going to get there, which gets into psychological safety, transparency, you know, all the kinds of things that we that we value. But it, it also relates to getting rid of this whole idea of trying to manage people and focus on leading people. I think that that's, that's really the core part of it. Okay. I, I, I don't think I can top that. So I think this is about the time that we need to wrap up this episode of Behavioral Grooves. And we hope that our conversation with Cecil has given you some ideas on how you can be a better human leader, not just at work, but at home, in whatever activities that you're doing, your community as well. We hope you consider the roles of adaptability and resilience in building a healthy and sustainable organization, and that you give up on this old-fashioned idea of managing other people, just focusing, yeah. just focus on managing the activities and support the people in ways that they need support, and you'll get the activities done. Yeah, we hope that you develop a caring mindset, or if you're already there, continue to grow that caring mindset in new ways that will help you and help the people around you. And with that, Groovers, we hope that you take a cup of that why we do what we do with you, and this week, you go out and find your groove. 